The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to to you, Lord Christ. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning. Thank you for joining us here this morning. Thank you for those who are joining us online as well. Can you please pray with me? Father, we do pray now as we come to your word that the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts here in this room this morning would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, in your sight. And Father, we do pray that by your spirit you would take your word and implant it deep into the very marrow of our bones and the bottom part of our heart that we might be changed and become like your son Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, next Sunday is the beginning of the Advent season, and we are ending our mini-sermon series that we've done over the past three Sundays on the essential emphases of the church. Uh, We've done hospitality. Uh, Craig did the Eternality on All Saints Sunday. Last week, Tim talked about worship. And today, our last sermon in this series, we'll talk about mission, the church's mission. I was listening to an interview this week by the psychologist and sociologist Jean Twenge about her book, iGen. It's a book about the iPhone generation, Generation Z, I suppose, or really anyone who grew up through adolescence in which the iPhone was just a fact of existence. It just was part of the air that you breathe. And her her book is based on in-depth interviews and a survey of 11 million uh, young adults from the iPhone i generation for Generation Z. And in her fifth chapter, She links together three surveyed trends. Two surveyed trends are heading up and one survey trend that is heading down. And the two that are... I said that backwards. Two that are going down and one that's heading up. Okay, so two that are declining are those who have any religious affiliation. Those who are checking none 
on the survey box if they have a religious affiliation. We've talked about that at All Saints many times, talk about people leaving the church, about this group of our society called the nuns who have no religious affiliation. The survey also indicated that whilst religious affiliation is going down, any kind of significant spirituality is also declining. But while these two things were going down, Twenge's survey also indicated that there's another thing rising. And that third thing that's rising is increasingly more and more people are saying that life has no meaning, that life has no purpose. More and more people are saying that they do not need to have a meaningful philosophy of life. She sort of says this in passing in her interview, but I think those two things are obviously intimately connected. While two were going down, this other one going up. Is this because of social media and the sort of hyper-present world of the internet and the hyper-connectivity of the internet that we're no longer able to sort of form long-term visions and goals? And perhaps that's true. Certainly, I think that's what Twenge is implying in her book and in her interview. But in some ways, the I generation is very hyper-focused on pragmatic ends, getting into a college, a particular college, getting a particular kind of a degree, getting a particular high-paying job. But the purpose... The reason why you should do that, the meaning behind all that effort, increasingly the surveys are finding that that question is not even being asked. More and more lives are lived without purpose, without meaning. So this morning I want to look at these three passages from the Old Testament, New Testament, and our gospel, and and see what they say to us about the purpose and meaning of the church. And as they do that, how it's meant to restore our own sense of purpose in an increasingly purposeless world. So do that three things from these three passages. Expand, grow, and bless. Expand, grow, and bless. First, expand. From the Old Testament here, I love the story of Abraham in Genesis 12 because it's a story of adventure. Abram's going on an adventure. It's like Bilbo heading out to Mount Doom. It's also about the expansion, though, of worship. To mention last week, one of the essential emphases of the church is that it worships. That's what she does. And here you have the story of Abram going out in order to expand the worship of God. It's a little obscure in this passage. So what do I mean? Where's this from? In Genesis 11, of course, the chapter before, Genesis 12, is the story of the Tower of Babel. Many of you know that story. On the plains of Shinar, the people are building a tower up to heaven, a sort of man-made mountain. Well, why are they doing this? In Genesis 11, verse 4, so that they can reach up to heaven by themselves. Reach up to heaven. That's a spiritual endeavor, isn't it? This is a tower for worship. This is a man-made mountain for worship. But also, that says in verse 4, why they are doing this is because they don't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth. They don't want to have to expand. They don't want to go out. And so when God comes and he confuses their languages, you know what happens in the rest of that story. It forces them to expand and to go out. Well, then we come to the end of Genesis chapter 11, and we meet a guy named Abram. Well, where is Abram living? He's living in the Ur of the Chaldees, which just happens to be on the plains of Shinar. In other words, he comes to Abram, who is living where the Tower of Babel is being built, where no one wants to leave. And he says to Abram, I want you in Genesis 12 to go, to go out, to expand. I want you, father of faith, to go out. And notice what Abram does as he goes out. Verse 7, he comes to Shechem. What does he do? He builds an altar. Well, what's an altar? An altar is a place of sacrifice, where sacrifice is offered in order to bring us into the heavenly presence of God. That is a spiritual endeavor. That is an act of worship. An altar is a symbolic picture 
of a mountain, of going up on a mountain into heavens to meet with God. Think of the rest of the pictures of this throughout the scriptures. Think about it in only a couple of chapters. Abraham and Isaac, where did they go up? Mount Moriah for what? To offer sacrifices. Think of all the sacrifices that happen in the historical books of the Old Testament where the nation of Israel goes up onto where? The high places, up onto the mountains to offer sacrifices to God. Think of Elijah going up on Mount Carmel to do battle with the prophets of Baal. What does he do when he's fighting the prophets of Baal? He's making a sacrifice up there on Mount Carmel. An altar symbolically represents a mountain. It's a mini mountain. It's why even today, when you, if you're driving in your car or you're in your closet or you're in your kitchen and you have a significant spiritual experience, what do we call that? A mountaintop experience. An altar, a mountain, these are places where sacrifice brings us closer to God. And notice what Abram is doing here. Verse 7, he builds that altar. But then, in verse 8, he goes out from that place. God has not told him where to stop yet. He's continuing to go out and expand. He goes to verse 8. He goes to Bethel. And I, and what does he do? He builds there. That's right, another altar. And then he keeps going. It says that the journey is not yet done. Abram journeyed on. And where does he go out into the Negev? And what do you think Abram's going to do when he gets to the Negev? That's right, he's going to build an altar. You see, God wanted Abram to go out, to expand and claim new places for people to meet with God, to open up new mountains, new spiritual mountains, new spiritual altars, to bring people into the worship of God, not to bring people to reach heaven and God by one man-made place like was happening at Babel, but to expand the places, expand God's worship over the entire world for God to meet with his people. Well, what do we have here in Luke chapter 9, our gospel reading? Verse 28, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain in order to pray. That is a spiritual endeavor. A mountain, and this mountain, is it a place of sacrifice? Jesus doesn't get sacrificed here on the Mount of Transfiguration, but what is Jesus talking about? Jesus here meets Moses and Elijah who join him, and as they begin to discuss, it says Jesus' departure that he was about to accomplish in verse 31. That word departure there is actually almost a comically bad translation of the Greek word. Do you know what the Greek word here for departure is in verse 31? It is literally the word exodus. Literally the word exodus. Just exodus in Greek. Well, how was the Old Testament exodus accomplished that Moses oversaw by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb that led the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and to meet with God in the desert? And now they're talking on this mountain with Jesus about what? The exodus he is about to accomplish, his own impending self-sacrifice. In Luke 9, from this point on in the Gospel of Luke, everything descends off the Mount of Transfiguration and everything is oriented and directed to Jesus going to Jerusalem where he will be sacrificed upon the cross. That's the rest of the book of Luke. So Moses led the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And Jesus here is going to lead God's people out of slavery to sin and into relationship with God the Father by becoming at the cross the true and final Passover lamb. On the Mount of Transfiguration here, Jesus is being revealed as what? The point of all of the altars of the Old Testament. The point of all of the old sacrifices from the Old Testament. The point of the Exodus. The point of the prophets. The point of what Moses was doing and what Elijah was doing. All of the Old Testament is summed up in Jesus, the goal to which all the sacrifices on all the mountains and all the altars beforehand have been pointing to him, to this moment, to him alone as the object 
of our worship as the only one who brings us back fully into relationship with God. Notice here, when Peter is confused, when he sees Moses and Elijah in all their glory along with Jesus, what does he say? This is, he is overwhelmed, and he says, let's make some tents, that is, you know, tabernacles. <laughs> let's make three things here to worship Moses and Elijah and Jesus in all their glory and magnificence. And in that moment, when Peter is you know, tempted to expand the worship away from Jesus and go back to Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, that moment God comes down in a cloud, and what does he say? No, this is my son. This is my chosen one. This is the point. Listen to him. And I don't think it's an accident here. At the end of this passage, did you catch this when Brent read the gospel? The last words here, verse 36, Luke 9, Jesus was found alone. No Moses, no Elijah, just Jesus. He is the point. He is the focus. And the church's mission and purpose, we are called to go out like Abram, expanding the places to listen to this Jesus, to worship him alone, to praise the Passover lamb, and to bring others to spiritual mountains and spiritual altars where Jesus is proclaimed alone, where our sin can be dealt with as the only and true and final answer, Jesus, to our sin, to our guilt, and to our shame. Places where we proclaim that he alone is the way to God. That's why our church gives 20% of its budget away outside of us to missions that are expanding God's kingdom out of us, out into the world. It's why several years ago we planted Grace and Peace in north central Austin. It's why Byron West is here and came this summer. is planting a church out in Dripping Springs. It's why Adam Radcliffe is on staff here as a church planting apprentice in a couple of years, planting another church here in Austin. It's why we give our money to Reach South Texas, which is our Presbytery's church planting network we're expanding the mountaintops and altars where people might meet Jesus and have their sins forgiven and brought into relationship with God. So that's the outward purpose and mission of the church, to expand the worship of Jesus. But it also has an inward purpose and mission, and that's to grow. This comes out of our New Testament passage here in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, notice the words grow in verse 16 here. Verse 15, to grow up in the contrast between children in verse 14 and to no longer be those children, but rather to, in verse 13, grow to maturity and adulthood, to come to the full stature, the adulthood of Christ and Christ-likeness. As individuals in the church and as a collective church body, the church's mission and purpose inwardly is to grow to maturity and to Christ-likeness. Well, how does Paul say that this is going to be done? He says, by the gifts and grace that God gives the church. Well, what are those gifts? Verse 8 here, you see these quotation marks. He ascended on high and led a host of captives and gave gifts. He's giving gifts to men. Paul here is quoting from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a psalm about God as a conquering king. God's going into all these nations of the world in this psalm, and he's conquering them, and he's establishing his kingdom over these nations. And in the days when a nation was conquered like that, well, what happens to those who became captives? They became the brightest and best and most capable with all of their abilities, were taken by this conquering kingdom, and they were brought in to now serve this new conquering government. So what Paul is saying here is that when Christ conquered the world through his death, resurrection, and ascension, he ascended on high. What he is saying is he brought his captives out of slavery to sin and death, that is you, that is all those who are united to Jesus by faith and through baptism, pours his grace on you and puts you where? Into his church. 
And he gives you his grace for verse 12 here in Ephesians chapter 4 to do the work of ministry. And what is the work of ministry? Making the church grow up into maturity. In other words, let me say it this way. You are Christ's gift to his church. Have you thought that way before? You are not here randomly. In fact, you are not even here because you wanted to be here, even though you might have thought that. God has gifted you here. He has brought you here. And your life, your talents, your abilities, your past, your sufferings and joy, the things that you have become matured in and maturated in, they are not random. They are the substance of God's grace in your life for the growth of the church, for this very church that you are in, for the good of the world. If you're a Christian... You are not free to simply float through life in the church, tossed to and fro like a kid on an inner tube on vacation in the wave pool. God intends you to grow up into Christ, into maturity, to give of yourself to others. So are you offering yourself? That first group here, verse 11, the the sort of official roles and titles in the church, the leaders, the pastors, shepherds, apostles, and prophets. This group, Paul says that these are the gifts, these people that God has brought into the church in order to equip everyone to do the work of ministry. But I also think that God is calling some of you in this congregation, we believe this, to service in his church as a pastor, as a missionary, even as the Zeers have gone out to Germany, as the Fries before them, as the McReynolds before them have come from this congregation out to the world in order to be witnesses and to build God's kingdom and church in other parts of the world. But I also think God is calling some of you into ministry in his church. This year, Tim went up to Covenant Seminary where he graduated from. And Tim got a MDiv degree, which is sort of the degree to go and do pastoral ministry. And when he graduated back in the day, however long ago that was, that was for you, Tim, in Oklahoma, uh, however long ago that was, he graduated with 71 other classmates who were all getting an MDiv degree. Do you know how many people with an MDiv degree graduated from Covenant Seminary last year? Six. Six. The church needs pastors to work and word and sacrament, who can equip the saints to build up the body. So for some of you that we know in our congregation, that we are, of course, encouraging and suggesting to them, are you offering yourself to God and to his church? Perhaps that's not you. Percentage-wise, it's probably not you. But the question is still the same. It's the same question. Are you offering yourself? I'm using the word offering intentionally. Something powerful that happens that we do every Sunday when we come to the table of communion, we come to the Eucharist, we come bringing bread and wine and offering it on this altar table to God. But, you know, here's the thing. Bread and wine, there's no such thing as a bread field. There's no such thing as a wine vineyard. Bread and wine have to be produced from wheat, from grapes. The raw materials must be brought forward and then crushed and ground up and transformed into something that can bring strength to others like bread, that can bring joy and rejoicing to others like wine. So let me ask it this way. What is the bread and wine of your life? 
that has been produced in your life? And are you offering it up to God to become the source of strength and joy for others? Whatever those things might be, your artistic gifts, your financial gifts, your organizational skills, your time, your skill with people, your ability to run a business, but even deeper, maybe at the deepest level this, the parts of your life that have been crushed and ground down, and in that process, God has transformed them and produced something beautiful in your life. That is a gift that others in this church need to have to strengthen them while they are being ground down, to bring them joy when they are being crushed, to help them to know that God is with them, that God is walking with them, and that God is producing something in their life of beauty and good and worth that will be a blessing to other people to keep on going. We need each other to grow. I need your gifts. You need my gifts. We need your courage. We need your skill. We need your hope. We need your faith. We need your story. We cannot grow without it. It is Christ's gift to his church. Verse 16 here. The body of Christ is joined together by every joint that is equipped. Well, what is every joint that is equipped that's helping the body to grow? It is each of you with your life and your talents. Those are the things that you've been equipped with. And when all of that is united, when that happens, we all grow up. The church matures. It grows up to what? Verse 16 here at the end of our passage in Ephesians 4. It builds itself up in love. In love. The intentional willing the good of others. That's what love is. The giving of ourselves to others. The pouring out of our life for other people. That is the orientation. That is the direction of the, of the church's mission and purpose here. To expand the worship of Jesus who loved us in this way. Who gave of himself like this. And to grow up and help each other grow up. To be like this Jesus who loved us this way. So we can love others as he loved us. Another way to say it is how God says it to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. God says to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, I am blessing you. Why? So that you will be a blessing. In verse 3, I want to bless all the families of the earth through you. I am blessing you so that you can become a blessing. The church does not exist for itself, but to bless others. I've always found that visually, the phrase iPhone, or as you know, Jen Twenge's iGeneration is it's really interesting visually. It's not my phone, it's iPhone, and it's a small lowercase i, but that i is so overpowering on everything else, even if the next word is capitalized. This i in front of the word phone or iGen, it's, it's a picture to me, visually, of what the sinful human heart is really like. Sin does this to every human heart. In every generation, not just Generation Z, in every generation going back all the way to the garden in Genesis chapter 3. It says, my life mission is an I mission. It is an I purpose. I get what I want to do, what I enjoy to become what I want for me. It's an I life. I am blessed so that I might be blessed. This is the opposite of the church. 
This is the opposite of the mission and direction of the church. We are blessed to bless others. To live an I life that I'm talking about. Jesus talks about it in the gospel reading, the beginning here in Luke chapter 9. If you live a life for yourself, what does he say? You will lose it. You will forfeit it. You will lose your life by trying to save it, by trying to hoard it. You will only find your life, Jesus says here in the gospel, by giving it away for him and for others. Pope John Paul once paraphrased Jesus saying here from Luke 9 by saying it this way, you will find your life in the measure that you give it away. You will find your life in the measure that you give it away. You will understand your blessing only as you bless others. You are blessed to be a blessing, to bring the bread and wine of your life as a sacrifice to his altar. And as you give it to him and to others, then you will find your meaning and your purpose. Then you will find at the top of the mountain alone, Jesus himself, the one that you're really looking for, whether you know it or not, the one that you've been looking for all of your life. And you will see his sacrifice for you and the marks of his hands, his love for you, the way his blessing became your blessing. I recently went home for 20th high school reunion and my parents picked me up from the airport as parents do. And uh, as I was in the car, I got in the you know, passenger seat and my dad was driving us back to, to my home and our home in Kansas. And my dad assumed the sort of dad driving position, you know, lounge back, his hands sort of draped over the steering wheel, you know, you know, the deal. And as he was doing, his arm was extended and I saw there's a scar right here in his arm. It's a little hole marked scar. It's always been there since I was a kid. I've always seen it. It wasn't really until I was older that I learned what it was and, and how I got there. That hole, that scar, was from when me and my three siblings were younger, were little, and we were poor. We grew up in a trailer park. And I didn't know anything about it, but you know, we didn't have enough food to put on the table. My dad worked like a dog. He always has. By that time, there wasn't enough money to make sure that we could eat. So as many times a week as he could, my dad would go and donate plasma. It's like two to three times a week. Exhausted, tired from work, he would still go and literally give his life blood so that we could eat. He poured himself out to strengthen us, to shelter us, to bring us joy until it gave him literally a scar. How can I not strive to live like that as he lived for me? There's a reason, my friends, that Jesus, even in his resurrected body, still carries the scars of his death upon the cross. Even in heaven right now, sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God, he still carries those scars in his own body. It is a picture of what it means to be blessed in order to be a blessing. He took all that he had been blessed with, eternal communion and the love and delight of God the Father, and he did not hold on to it, but instead he went to the cross and offered it up so that we could share in that same communion with God the Father and the love of God. How can we not, as his people, made in his image, redeemed by his sacrifice, God's sons and daughters in his own family, how can we not strive to live as he lived for us? 
to expand the worship of Christ so that others might know this Jesus who loves like this, to grow into the full stature of this kind of life-giving love and maturity that we might shelter others and bring them strength and joy to take all that God has blessed us with so that we can be a blessing to others. That is the mission of the church. That is the mission of this church. May it be so. Amen. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who, though he was in full communion with you, did not consider all that he had with you, Father, in heaven, and did not grasp onto that, but let it go, entered into the world and humbled himself to the form of a servant and to the very death upon the cross so that he might share his blessings, his very life with you, Father, with us. Thank you for that. Father, may we so be changed by his grace and love for us that we might grow to full maturity, that we might also, in our blessings, be a blessing to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.